All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. You're listening to Dropping the Gloves with former NHL All-Star John Scott, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Welcome back to Dropping the Gloves. I hope everybody had a good weekend. I know I did. Nice and relaxing weekend, Tim. What about you? I had a great weekend, actually. I did a lot. Oh. hung out with friends. I was on the boat. Went for a long bike ride on Saturday, which was good because it was the most I've done since I broke the leg and um, did a bunch of just stuff around the house yesterday. It was nice. What's a long bike ride for Tim Orsberger? <laughs> it was 25 miles. That is long. Holy moly. Yeah. I didn't mean to. I just kind of just kept going. I was on the peninsula and I was like, oh, I'll just keep going. And then I, <laughs> I didn't realize how far away I was. And I had like maybe seven or eight miles to go away from home when I, when I thought I was closer from, to home. So that last few miles was tough, but it was all good. That's a long bike ride. That's yeah, that's the Tom, the, the Forrest Gump thing where you just start running. And then you realize, well, I got to go home. And then you got to. Yeah. It just turns around. Yeah. And then you got to go <laughs> home. Well, good, good, good. I'm still on uh, vacation. We decided to extend it a little longer. We, we just enjoy our time up here. So we didn't go home. We were originally kind of thinking about going home Sunday, maybe. But then we just figured, you know what? Let's just stay until maybe Wednesday. So now we're, we're here a couple more days. So the, it might be spotty, the internet. I don't know how it was on Friday. Was it good? Friday was great. Yeah, Friday was great. It sounds good so far today, too. It's just the only downfall is I'm in the living room, and I got all my kids and my wife right beside me. So there's a lot of distractions, but that's, that's okay. okay. That's the okay. That's the sound of life. Distractions are good. People seem to like my distractions. I don't know what it is. It drives me crazy, but everybody else seems to like it, so that's good. But anyways, there was some other news that happened this weekend, and it was very interesting, and it got everybody all a buzz. So a few years back... If everyone can recall, Sebastian Ajo was a Carolina Hurricanes forward. He was just coming into his own. He had just finished up his ELC entry-level contract, so he was approaching his fourth year. He was negotiating with Carolina, trying to figure out numbers, deals. They weren't really coming to a, to a head. There, were, there was an impasse. Sebastian thought he was owed more. Carolina, much like they do, they're a little more tight with their money. They're a small market team. They said, you know what? We don't think you're worth that much. And they couldn't come to an agreement on a contract. A team saw the opportunity, Montreal Canadiens. They signed Sebastian Ajo to a big contract offer. And Sebastian obviously signed the contract. He was fully 
in on going to Montreal. I think it was a 38.6. I, I don't know what the whole, it was, it was a big contract for Sebastian. Aho. It was, it was in the 30, $40 million range. He signed it. Carolina matched the offer sheet. Fast forward two years until now. So Montreal is right up against the cap. Like I'm talking, they have $0 to spend. They have a lot of players that they still need to sign. And by a lot, I mean a couple. Carolina comes walking along and they go, hmm, what are we going to do here? We have a lot of cap space. We obviously didn't sign Dougie Hamilton. We already got all our guys signed. They just signed Sveshnikov. They've been having a pretty good offseason. You know, take that with a grain of salt when you lose Dougie Hamilton, a pretty good offseason. You signed some good players. You made some good moves. They decide to throw an offer sheet at a restricted free agent. Just so happens he plays for Montreal. Kaki and Emmy, you can say his name better than I can. What is his name? Uh, it's KK Kaspiri Kokoniemi. It's uh, I think the KK is from the Kokoniemi, but yeah. What's his name? Lateri- Jess, Jess Barry. Just Barry. Just Barry Kokoniemi. Whatever. <laughs> so Carolina throws an offer sheet at this guy for six point one million dollars, and it's not abnormal to throw an offer sheet. It has been done. It's been done very frequently since the salary cap has been acted. And actually, this is only the tenth offer sheet that's been signed in the last 16 years and 16 years coincides with the, the onset of the salary cap. So not totally outrageous. One every year usually gets signed. What's strange about this offer sheet is it's only for one year and it's for $6.1 million for a player who was a healthy scratch last year in the playoffs. So Tim, I just, I don't know, break down this whole offer sheet a little bit then i want to delve into the offer sheet history and this and that i know there was some drama happening tim tell me about the drama that's going on between carolina and montreal now uh, well i mean he's a good player but i think montreal carolina was doing this more to montreal than in order to to sign him because this, this is a guy who's talented kid i don't want to like you know just put him down or anything but he's got 62 career points in 171 games Roughly on pace for like a 35-point season in, in the, across his first three years. So it's $6 million is a lot of money. Uh, Montreal has a week to match it, dating back to when I think the, I think this happened on Friday, Friday or Saturday. Um, and if they don't match it, then Carolina forfeits a first-round pick and a third-round pick to Montreal, uh, which is the price of uh, signing an RFA. Uh, the fun stuff, though, is that, you know, you mentioned the Ajo thing. It's sort of payback. It goes deeper than that. The the statement that um, gosh I forget is it Breezebois who's the Carolina coach a GM uh, Waddell what oh yeah Don Waddell he uh, basically his press conference was exactly word for word what Montreal had released two years ago so like there's clearly throwing shade there the twenty dollars signing bonus is apparently Sebastian Ajo's number and that's what that was all about. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of petty stuff. I think it's a lot of fun. People are, you know, all over that on social media over the weekend. I don't know. Do you think that's kind of lame or do you think it's funny? You know, I went back and forth on this and what I came to was it's petty and fun. You know, two things can be same, can be true at the same time. I feel like Carolina maybe overdid it with the, the revenge, the pettiness, the, the Twitter barbs, the $20, the press release in French, all of these sort of things, the word-for-word statement by the GM. It's all in good fun, 
But at the same time, it's like, come on, let's be big boys here. You know, like th- this is real life. This is serious business. You are offer sheeting this guy for $6.1 million. That's not nothing. And he hasn't deserved it yet. So I don't know where they came up with this number. If they figured that maybe, well, okay, they, they looked at Montreal's roster. Like, okay, Shea Weber's money is going to come off the books. This will be tough for them because Montreal is in a tough spot. And when you just look at this from a strictly business perspective, this is a win-win for Carolina. I like this move. They've all they've wanted Kaki and Emmy for a long time now. They tried to trade for him last year. They they tried to get him at the draft three years ago. This is a player that they've coveted. And I know he hasn't, you know, been that great in his three years so far in the NHL. He does have some talent. When he shows flashes, he is a very good player. And if he can kind of solidify their number two center role, this is a very good move for Carolina. Kaki and Emmy's still young. Carolina's core is still young, but just going back to, is this petty? It is. It it makes for good fodder to talk about. There's, there's things that just, they don't have to do. And Carolina, they like this, you know, they liked it a couple of years ago when they made their playoff run. They were like the bad boys. Remember when Don Cherry called, I can't remember, uh, misfits or whatever they called them. Bunch of jerks. Bunch of jerks. And then they made the t-shirts and they just embraced it. And they did all these celebrations after every win and nobody really cared for it. They like being, that odd guy out they enjoy that role of being you know the underdog the guy who you don't really like and he's he's making good he's playing really great even though nobody likes him they embrace that so i think they go out of their way to put themselves in that position and they're doing that here and you know is it is it kind of justice payback for montreal because Montreal did go out of their way to make those comments. Mark Bergevin did say, you know what, this player wants to be here. He doesn't like his situation in Carolina. And, and you know, he, he fits our young core group of players. And Waddell's just kind of shoving that right up his pipe and saying, smoke this. So it, it is great. It is funny. I, I do like some of it. I think they maybe went overboard with a lot of it with the, the press release and the $20 signing bonus. But there is a happy medium there. Where it's like, you know what, yeah. Maybe Montreal shouldn't have offer sheeted Aho because when you look at the offer sheet Montreal did sign Sebastian Aho, they really wanted Aho. And to make it difficult for Carolina to re-sign that to match that offer sheet, it wasn't a typical contract where it's like, okay, we're going to give him a six-year contract for five million bucks a year, and this is it. No, they it was so heavily loaded. In a year-to-year basis, just on his salary, it was a minimum, like it was it was a league minimum contract where he was making only $750,000 a year. There was a $21 million signing bonus to be paid the first two years. So if you're a small market team and your margins are very, very small and you have to like balance the books every year for you to pay $10 million in two years, that's a lot. That's a lot of money to just fork over for a player. And it's like, if, if you're trying to like make things work from year to year to year, and you're not just a juggernaut Montreal who just has money coming out of your ears, it's hard for you to do that. And you've seen other teams do that along the way. I remember when Shea Weber was first coming up in Nashville, Philadelphia threw a massive offer sheet at him with a huge signing bonus. I think they gave him $68 million, but it was a $110 million contract, but it was $68 million due in the first six years. So if you're Nashville and you're trying to match this offer sheet from Philadelphia, it's like, gosh, how am I going to pay Shea Weber $68 million in six years? That is a massive amount of money. So it just makes it hard for these small market teams to fork over that kind of money. And that's where these big, big market teams kind of lean on. Mind you, all these contracts usually get matched, but it just shows you the kind of strength that these big market teams have when you're kind of dealing with a smaller market team like a Nashville or a Carolina. But that being said, 
this is why Carolina is kind of paying Montreal back because they see Montreal. They're at a very vulnerable situation right now. They have a lot of money tied up in their goaltenders and their defensemen and their other forwards. They don't have money to burn and they know Montreal doesn't like Kaki and Emmy, but it would like to get something back from this guy was a great player in juniors. He, he came over. There was a lot of high praise for him. He hasn't found his footing yet, but like I said, when he does play well, he plays really, really well. Do you think Montreal will match this, Tim? And should they match it? Uh, $6 million is a lot of money. I don't know. I, I think they probably will. Um, and the early reports were saying basically like there's no way that they won't match this. He's too important to their future. But gosh, $6 million for a kid who, like you said, talented, but hasn't done too much yet. I know it's only a one-year deal, but that's going to that's gonna handcuff them if they do end up matching it. This is a lose-lose for Montreal. It's a win-win for Carolina. I think this is a great situation. There's no way this kid is worth $6 million. He's probably worth two, two and a half if he signs a bridge deal to get him to his UFA or another restricted contract. Kaki and Emmy is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's negotiating with Montreal. Montreal Healthy scratched him last year. They don't value him as much as other teams do, Carolina. But – they want him on his team because they invested a high draft pick in him. So they're just like, what do we do? We want to sign this guy. I guarantee they were talking three, four years, two and a half million dollars, get him locked up. Hopefully you can progress. Then we give him a big deal after that. It's not happening. Carolina swoops in. Does cocky and Emmy have to sign the deal? No, but if you're a young kid, you're not sure of your future. Montreal's, healthy scratch you during the playoffs, this team's throwing $6.1 million at you. The the prospect of playing with Aho and Shvechnikov and all these uh, Teravainen and that Martin Nikas who had a breakout year last year, that's pretty enticing. Going to Carolina, getting out of Montreal where you've had nothing but bad press written about you over the years. I'm signing that deal, even if it's only for a one-year deal. And it wouldn't surprise me if – there is verbiage between the agent and Carolina saying, listen, we'll sign you to the one one year $6.1 million deal. As soon as that offer sheet goes through, we're going to re-up you for a four-year contract that'll lower the salary cap and we'll just make it a four-year, $4 million deal. So it kind of makes it more palpable for Carolina, makes it a more you know, a solidified deal for Kaki Nemi and Carolina. That wouldn't surprise me if that's happening, but I think Montreal passes on this. I don't think they can afford Kakinemi. I don't think it's a good move for them to keep him. If he signs in Montreal for 6.1 and he plays like he usually does, Breezebaz or uh, Bergeron's just going to have egg on his face. It's going to look bad. They're going to miss out because you know at the trade deadline, if they try to get rid of him, do you think they'll get a first rounder for him? Not a chance. Maybe get a third rounder. You're getting a first and a third. Mind you, it's a, it's a late first rounder. It's a early third. It's not, they're not good draft picks, and Montreal does not have a good track record when it comes to their first rounders at all. So it's kind of a throwaway. And Carolina, this is a win-win because if you get him and he turns out to be your second-line centerman, it's great. If he doesn't, and this is a wash, it's like okay, you know what? It is what it is. Six point one million bucks for a potential second-line centerman. I like this. The only strange thing I don't understand, and I know I'm draining on here, why would you? offer him 6.1 million bucks, but you wouldn't re-sign Dougie Hamilton for $9 million, which he signed in, in the open market. When they offered him 6.5, you could have used that extra money that you're using for Kaki and Emmy just to get arguably one of the top 10 defensemen in the league for 9 million bucks. I don't, I know their defensive end is strong. They don't need to add a Dougie Hamilton because they have a lot of good guys back there and their forwards is where they have a need, but it just is like, gosh, Dougie Hamilton, there's not many of those guys who come along every now and again. So why not just 
up the ante a little bit, get him for nine million bucks, which ended up turning out to be a great deal when you looked at all the other defensemen who signed the McCars, the Seth Jones, the Heiskins, all those guys. The $9 million for Dougie Hamilton looks really, really good right now. And New Jersey Devils got him for that. So that's a whole other conversation for another day where they open up the checkbook for Cocky and Emmy, but they wouldn't open it up for Dougie Hamilton, who played so well there for so long. I don't know. You don't think Carolina's going to get him. I think Carolina's going to get him. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out this coming year. And then going forward between these two teams, they obviously have some kind of rivalry. This is like pretty interesting meeting Bergeron and Waddell when the GMs have their meetings down in Florida in the offseason. I wonder what the interaction is between those two guys because it can't be friendly. Well, that was my question. It's like, it seems like uh, approaching an RFA is almost like an unwritten rule of hockey. It just doesn't happen very often. There's a reason like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't hear about it, but no one's taking serious runs at Brady Kachuk or Elliot, Elias Patterson or whatever. Like, do you think that that Waddell broke one of those sort of uh, not an unwritten rule, but sort of a, a no, no among GMs? Is he broken? Is he the other GMs look on this and kind of like shake their head at it? Or does it not mean anything? It's just business. Like, I don't know. Is, do they take this stuff personally? Well, this is where players, we, we kind of shake our head and it's frustrating because we honestly feel, and I, I say we, as if I'm still a player, but I was that there's some sort of collusion, right? Because when you're an RFA, you don't really have many options. You become an RFA, your team offers you an offer sheet, but as soon as free agency starts or whenever that period begins, you can talk to any team you want to. Your agent has the permission to go to talk to every single team and work up a contract for you to sign and present to your current team to try to see if they match it. If not, you go away. That doesn't usually happen. That very rarely happens once a year, usually less than that. So, when you're a player and you're an RFA, you start to think, well, why am I not taught? Why are no GMs calling them? I'm a good player. They can offer me a contract. It would just cost them a first and a third rounder. Like we're seeing now with Kaki and Emmy. Why wouldn't a team do that? If, if like you said, if you're a Brady Kachuk, if you're Elias Pettersson, you are a high end talent. You're approaching the prime of your career. What's the problem? That's where players start to think, well, is there an unwritten rule between the owners that they instruct their GMs? Like, Hey, we don't want to drive players' prices up. We want to keep right where they're at because you know there could be a bidding war. GMs could come in and offer sheet teams who are tight under the cap. Vancouver is so tight under the cap right now, you couldn't even squeeze a hair in there. They don't have much money. So if you're a team and you have some money under your in your wallet, why not go and offer Pedersen seven, eight million, nine dollar, nine million dollars for seven years? Why wouldn't you do that? And that's where people think, well, is, is there some sort of unwritten rule between the owners, like instructor GMs not to throw offer sheets around? And maybe there is something there. What about, well, I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me. You're saying that the, the Habs are right against the salary cap? Yes. So, so like losing that money doesn't, if they don't sign Kokanen Emmy, it's not like this money frees up on their, their cap. Because a lot of people were speculating that they would let him go and use some cap room to go assign Eichel or someone like that. Or go trade for him, I mean. But you're saying that's not possible? Well, they're right up against the cap. The only money that they're going to get freed up right now is if Shea Weber becomes a long-term injury reserve. Then he makes 7.8. So if he comes off the books, you're freeing up $8 bucks right there. And yeah. that would give you some money to go and maybe get somebody else. But right now, they have zero cap space. They're above the cap limit right now. So they're going to have to actually make some moves to become cap compliant at the start of the year. But Shea Weber is going to come off the books, so they're going to have all that money open up. And then who knows about Jonathan Durant? His situation, he obviously has some issues going on last year. If he comes off the book as well, that gives you 12, 13 million bucks right there. So there's a lot to be kind of shaken out in Montreal. Is Kakiemi worth 6.1? I don't think you're signing him for this year. You're signing him for his, his potential. 
They've invested some time in him. They've invested a draft pick. It wouldn't surprise me if they match, but I hope they don't. Yeah, I hope they don't just because I love the drama. I would love to see these two teams match up. Cocky enemy come in. He's wearing, I don't know what number he's going to pick, but he's going to come in. He's going to light up Montreal and it's going to make Montreal look bad for, for I, I don't want Montreal to succeed. I don't know why. It, it just ingrained in me. I think growing up a Bruins fan, you're a Bruins fan. We just don't like Montreal. That's just, it's just how we do. I know I rooted for them last year in the cup run, but now I'm done. They're back to, they're back to one of my least favorite teams. And going back to this offer sheet stuff, I did a little digging. And what I found interesting was before the salary cap offer sheets were pretty, it was the norm. I went back and looked at all the players who had offer sheeted and it's, it's, there's a lot of big names. The last big name to get offer sheeted before the salary cap was Sergei Fedorov. And he was with the Detroit Red Rings. And surprisingly enough, the team that signed him was the Carolina Hurricanes. And they, they offered him a contract for six years, $38 million. And the interesting part of it was it was big time front loaded and it included a $12 million bonus if Fedorov reached the conference finals. And this is genius because the Detroit Red Wings at that time were the best team in the NHL. Carolina knew they weren't going to make the conference finals and they knew Detroit was going to make the conference finals. So if Detroit signs this contract, you're basically given giving Sergei Fedorov an extra $12 million. And sure enough, Detroit matched the contract and he made $28 million that season with the signing bonuses, with that $12 million bonus for the conference finals. Yeah. So because of the loopholes and because of the bonuses, Fedorov walks away. He does make a six-year $38 million contract, but with all the bonuses in that first year alone, he made 28 million bucks. It's kind wow. of interesting how that played out, but like it's a who's who of people signing contracts, um, offer sheets, Joe Stackick signed one. Did you hear about that? Nobody, no. nobody remembers these things. Chris Gratton, Matthias Olin, Ron Tugnut, Keith Kachuk, Stu Gritzman, Shane Corson, Scott Stevens signed two with the St. Louis blues. St. Louis wanted them really bad. He signed one with when he was with the devils to go to St. Louis. And he signed one when he was with Washington, to go to St. Louis. So Timo Solani signed one when he was with the Winnipeg jets in 1992 to go to the Calgary flames. Like all of these players, Brendan Shanahan, it, it was normal to sign one. And for whatever reason, the salary cap came in. This is why players think there was collusion. The salary cap came in. It just stopped. Nobody signed offer sheets. Nobody offered offer sheets, excuse me. And every so often there would be a Thomas Vanek or a Dustin Penner, David Backus. We talked about it just because he was at such an impasse with St. Louis. He had no other option kind of to sign with Vancouver. It's very, very strange for a team to offer an offer sheet. So we'll see what happens with Montreal, Carolina. It's, it's interesting. The last two offer sheets were between those two teams. I don't know. I think Carolina is going to sign them. You think Montreal is going to match it. It'll be interesting. Moving on, Tim, what do you want to talk about? Well, most likely, I think they're going to sign him like as soon as we stop recording this episode. Because that's when you, that's when news usually breaks, and when, it's great. right right when we finish. Um, well, you know, the, this kind of prompted me to talk about just the business of hockey in general because there's all these conversations about offer sheets, UFAs, RFAs, signing bonuses, all this stuff, and I feel like the average fan doesn't really actually know that much. If you push them on what this stuff means, like they have a concept of it, myself included, or they learned it from playing like fantasy sports or, or the uh, GM mode on video games. But that's not really the totally reflective, obviously, of the real world. So um, I kind of jotted down some questions I had and maybe our listeners would have listening to the business of hockey and stuff. And the first one is, you know, the, the one-way versus two-way contracts. Like I have a general sense of what they are, but what exactly is the difference um, I guess that's the first question. Start there. What's the difference between a one-way and a two-way? 
Oh, this um, a one way is NHL only. You're getting NHL money. That's it. No matter what happens, if you're on a one way deal and they send you down to the AHL, you still get paid your NHL contract. That's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. A two way contract is meaning you pretty much sign two different deals on one contract. You sign an NHL deal and you sign an AHL deal. This is usually for younger guys coming into the league and it gives the team flexibility to send them down, not have them to pay NHL money. So my first two or three contracts were two way. So it would be a minor league minimum in the NHL, which was, I don't know, six fifty, whatever it was a number. And then you had an AHL deal that was usually higher, but it was like a, it doesn't have to be higher, but it's like a 50, 60, $70,000 contract. So when you're in the AHL, you're making that 50, 60, $70,000, you get called up. That is times by 10 immediately. So it's, it's a big deal when you get called up because you make NHL money. Then when you get sent down, you're back to the AHL. That's why you see a lot of teams. If they have a guy who's kind of on the fringe on the bubble, he's a fourth line guy. They send him up and call him up so often. It makes your head spin. Just, it's just for saving them money. So that's the difference between a one way and a two way. So when you see a contract, especially during free agency, it'll say, oh, this guy signed a three-year, $2 million contract. Yeah, maybe. But if it's a two-way contract, it doesn't mean it's $2 bucks. It could mean it's you know $150,000 because most likely he's going to end up in the AHL. What, uh, what like just determines whether or not a player has to go through waivers when he gets sent down? It, if you're on a one-way deal, you automatically do, and it has a lot to do with your age. And that we can get into that with the RFAs, UFAs. If you're over 25 and you're on a one-way deal, you have to go through waivers. If you're on an entry-level contract or if you're a restricted free agent, I don't think you have to go through waivers. So it has a lot to do with um, years of service and your age that you have to go through waivers. So like when you find, when you sign your first one-way contract, and I remember you talking about getting your first, and it was kind of a little bit of a celebration, right? Because it's a milestone. It means that you actually really made it in the league, right? Well, yeah, it's, it's a big deal for the fringe guys like myself. If you're a young first-rounder, you know you're going to get a one-way no matter what. So it's, uh, it's kind of a big deal. You sign your one-way, you know you're going to get paid that money. And the bigger deal is, aside from the money, which is great, you know you're going to get the first shot at the NHL. Because when you're not on the one way, when you're on a two way, you're almost expendable. When I was in Houston, I knew there was guys in the NHL who I was as good at as, if not a little bit better, but because they had a one way, the team was invested in them and they were going to get the first, second and third shot. And I was going to be the guy who would come in if they faltered. So it gave you that little bit extra confidence going into camp, knowing that you had a solidified roster spot and you had to really mess up big time to lose that spot. So it, it is a mental thing where it's like, okay, they invested in me. They like me. I'm going to start the season in the NHL and I can only grow from there. So it, it, it kind of works in two ways where it's like, okay, I get the money. That's great. But also I'm going to be in the NHL. It's just a mental and kind of, well, obviously the money's great. Don't get me wrong. Like are GMs like pretty hesitant to hand out one way contracts. Like are they trying to get two ways wherever they can, when it's possible? Well, yeah, why not? Like that, that's a no brainer. And for the RFAs, most of the RFAs, unless you're a high end guy, you're going to be on a two-way contract. So if, if you look at the, the contracts for most of the restricted free agents, they're mostly two-way because it gives the GMs flexibility and they don't want to salaries to count against the cap. Every one-way contract you sign, it counts against your cap, regardless if they're in the AHL, the NHL, that counts against your cap. So you got to be careful how many of those you give out, but usually every team has about 23, at least 24, 25 one-way contracts. 
So if you're, no matter, even if you play the entire season in the AHL, if you have a one-way contract, you that contract falls within the rules of the NHL, meaning the same minimum. It's an NHL oh, minimum yeah. contract, even if my you play last, the entire season in the AHL. My last year, I was on, I, I was on a one-way my whole career, my last like seven years. And when I got sent down to St. John's, I made so much more being in the AHL because I didn't have that 25% escrow getting taken off my check. So it was just a benefit for me playing in the AHL because I made so much more and I didn't have to pay the escrow. I didn't have to pay all the taxes that come along with being the NHL. And it was just great. So it was actually a bump in pay to be sent down because yeah, I was still getting my NHL paycheck. And then are the, are the UFAs and RFAs tied to whether or not you have a one-way or two-way contract? No, no. When you're an RFA, so RFA is restricted free agent. UFA is an unrestricted free agent. That just means the amount of flexibility you have as a player to negotiate with teams. If you're a UFA, you're free. You can go talk to anybody. An RFA is a player who has seven years or less of professional experience or you're 25 years or younger. So when you look at these kids now, they come out, they're 18 years old, they're on their entry-level contract, which gives them a three-year entry-level contract. They turn 21. That's why you see a lot of these bridge deals, the three, four-year deals. It gets them from 21 to 25. And a player wants to be a UFA when they turn 25. That maximizes their earning potential, and it gives them the best chance to sign that big ticket contract. Teams want to sign them to when they're after their entry-level contract, like a two- or three-year deal, so they still have them as an RFA for when they're 24, so they can sign them to a six-year deal, so that wraps them up their whole prime. So it, it's like a chess match where you're you're trying to maximize your value as a player, and you're also, you want to hit the free agent. You want to be a UFA. You want to talk to all these teams with no strings attached. When you're an RFA, you have these strings attached, or it's like, okay, a team doesn't want to give up a first round or a third rounder. There's a lot of strings attached. So it, it's um, it's up to the GM to kind of navigate that. It's up to the player to maximize his potential. And you see the players kind of exerting their power a little bit these days where they're getting the four-year bridge deal. So when they get out of that, they're a UFA. You see that a lot more than you used to in the past where teams be like, no, we're just not going to sign you or no, this is the contract. We're going to give you an entry level. Then we're going to sign you to a four-year deal. Then you're going to be an RFA and then we're going to sign you to a seven-year deal. So it, you are really tied up as a player in the past, but now it seems like the players just have so much more power. And I don't, I don't know why owners are letting them do that, but it is what it is. Like you see the guys like Kachuk and Pedersen who are holding out still. They're like, no, we're not going to sign. We'll go play overseas. We'll sit out. We'll do what we need to do to get what we want. And if you don't want to give us that, we'll go a different route and we'll see how it plays out. But the owners seem to be giving in pretty quickly these days, which is, is definitely a change from years past where the players were just, I don't want to say cave, but they would just do what the GMs or the owners wanted them to do. So maybe it's a sign of the times, Tim. So when you, when you complete your entry level contract, what changes other than making more money? Like, are there other like structural or like technical dif- differences between like an entry level contract and the rest of the contracts handed out to players? Does your life change as a player in terms of not just making more money, but like fewer restrictions, or, or is it just basically just the money? Just dollars and cents on the e- entry level contract you have a a ceiling that you can make that goes with bonuses that goes with base salary that goes with everything. There's a ceiling you can make. And then once your three years is done, you you can make whatever you want. Sky's the limit. And that's why you see these huge contracts for these kids. The the high schools, the Macars are signing them for eight, nine years. 
Cause then they get them for that long. They don't have to worry about being a UFA until they're like 28, 29. It works for the player. It works for the team. Hopefully they can turn into a superstar. If not, the player's set for life. You know, we've seen goods of this. We've seen bad of this and goods and bads. That didn't make sense. We've seen the pros and cons of this, but uh, no, it doesn't change much. I, I think the only difference is no, there's no difference at all between an ELC and an RFA. It's just, you make more money. I don't know. Um, okay. So signing bonuses in general, like how exactly do they work? How are they negotiated? What's the, some, some seems like some players get them when they sign new contracts. Some don't, that's a part of the negotiation. Is there like a, a tactical reason why they'd have it or not? Like what's the, what's the inside scoop there? <laughs> this is the inside scoop. Well, back in the day, signing bonuses did not count against the cap, which was the wild West. So that's why everybody wanted a signing bonus. It was a big deal before the new salary cap came in 16 years ago. You could sign a guy like the Sergey Fedorov contract. It was six years for $36 million. And then he had a massive signing bonus, but his average cap hit was $6.1 million, whatever that is. And he got a massive signing bonus. So you would see these contracts with the massive signing bonuses. And now the league figured that out. They kind of cut that loophole, which was bad for the players because it's taking money out of the system. And players always want money into the system. They want to have as much revenue as they can get. And now signing bonuses and salary cap bonuses and performance bonuses, they're all tied into the salary cap. So at the end of the season, if you achieve all your bonuses, that counts against your team's cap and whatever, whatever. But yeah, it's... That's the tricky thing with the last lockout. The owners did so well by getting rid of the signing bonuses because that was such a great loophole for players. Just, okay, I'll I'll give you my league minimum contract, but then you got to give me a signing bonuses. And if you go back and look at all those contracts, a lot of the players weren't making a lot average annual value. They had massive signing bonuses. So the contracts didn't look that huge. But then when you dig into it a little more, it's like they were still making tons of money. It was just all in lump lump sums. And yeah. Oh, go ahead. Teams do that nowadays just to make it difficult for players to be traded. And players do it in their contracts to be difficult to be traded. So if you're a guy who doesn't want to be traded, you front load your contract. You say, okay, I'll sign your eight-year deal, but I want four or $5 million in signing bonuses my first four years. So if you're trading for me, in essence, you're trading for me making 10 million bucks a year for my first four years. And do you want to shell out actual money to me? Or do you want to get me my last four years when I'm only making 3 million bucks? So there, there's some strategy involved with the contracts nowadays, where if players want to be moved or they don't want to be moved, they can kind of move the money around to make it harder for them to be acquired by their teams. Because as an owner, you want to get a guy, his average annual value is like, okay, this guy makes $4 million a year. But then you look into the numbers, it's like, well, in actuality, he's making a ton at the back end of his contract because he knows he does. He's might get traded and he doesn't want to be traded. And he's making like six, $7 million those last three years. Do I want to pay that much money for a guy who's not worth that much? So it, it's interesting when you look into the numbers. And are, are signing bonuses always paid lump sum? Yeah. Well, it's all into the contract. You can get it like throughout the contract, like each check you do get a portion of your signing bonuses. Usually it's lump sum. Players want their money. They want it now. They want it yesterday. Usually it's July 1st. The money gets deposited in your account. And it's, I've never had a signing bonus, but I've just heard stories like, okay, next day there's $10 million sitting in my account. It's wild. Like Tyler Myers, he got massive signing bonuses with Vancouver. And it's just like, yep, that day I just get 8 million bucks deposited in my account. It's just, 
No one will understand that. I won't understand. It's just like money that you just will never be able to spend even if you tried. Like going into a store and be like, I want to spend all my money, but I can't because I'll just end up buying the whole store. Like it's just, it's stupid money where you just never, it's so much money, Tim. Like how much money do you have in your bank account? Tim? Tell me, tell me right now. <laughs> you want to, you want to but just imagine going and checking your balance tomorrow. And there's like a thousand times more in there. Like, what would you think? It's just like your brain would explode. It's just so much money. You can't even re- fathom how to spend it. It's crazy. I, would, I wouldn't go to work tomorrow. I know that. <gasps> how dare you? That, show, that shows a lot about you. It says a lot. It, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me in the least. Yeah. I would sure. go to work and probably work harder. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. All right. So, so what other questions you got, Tim? This yeah, brain buster. I feel like I'm getting quizzed here. Well, hopefully this is interesting. I think I think this is stuff that people like, I don't know. No one's going to take the time to research it. So hopefully they're learning something. But we talked about the salary cap. Um, how exactly, what's the science or business or whatever behind like the final number of the salary cap? Is there like an algorithm? What goes into it? I know profitability is a big part of it. I know there's negotiations between the league and the owners and the players. Who ultimately sets the number and how do they do it? Um, every year at the end of the season, they go over the books. They figure out how much money they made. Who's and how much that? Money they lost. Um, the league and the players. Okay. So the players have to, the league submits all their numbers. Oh, thank you. The league submits all their numbers. And then they, the players either have to just accept them or they say no. And they go back and audit and they'll, they'll ask a, third-party audit company to go in and just audit the books for these teams. That happens quite often where you get a team like Carolina who doesn't report their revenue from their concessions or a team like Arizona who doesn't report their revenue from their, their ticket sales, or they, they cook the books because it happens so often. And you would be surprised how, how slimy and kind of sneaky the owners are to hide money and to say, Oh, we're losing all this money. But then they have separate entities where it's like, we own the team, but we also own the parking lot across the street and we're not reporting that revenue. So Robert Kraft did that for years. He's still doing it. He owns all the parking surrounding uh, he does, Stadium. Yeah, for miles <laughs> boatload off that, but he doesn't report it as revenue for the new England Patriots and mind you should he, but it is part of the team, but it's not. It's just one of those things. So teams will do that where they, they say they sell 20,000 tickets a game, but they, they don't sell 20,000. They give away five and that drops their per ticket revenue, you know? And so there's a lot of things team do. And so we, we've audited. And I want to say we, the players association, when I was playing, we audited teams often and you would find millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that are just hidden. And so the, play, the teams end up having to pay the players and then players get money back and we'll get a check like five years later from Carolina saying, Oh, well, we, we made a mistake and now we got to pay each player like a thousand bucks. And so that happens quite often, but what was the question? How do they, how do they set the salary cap? Usually the way it's done is you never go backwards as a player. You always want to put money into the system. So when I was playing my nine, 10 years in the league, there was always a 5% growth factor. So you take the the salary cap, you do a 5% multiplication factor, then you add that back into the system. The owners agreed upon it. The players agreed upon it. It's in the, the collective bargaining agreement and you just sign off on it. The players were the ones who had to sign off on it. And that would just happen. And it happened every single year. And that's negotiated into the, the collective bargain agreement. So it, it was just an easy way of just making sure that salary cap increased every year. Obviously, COVID put a wrench in that system. When they signed the new salary cap, they agreed to like keep it flat. And then they'll you know revisit that when COVID eventually, hopefully, leaves one day. Are salary cap discussions held throughout the year? Or is it really just the end of the year when all the numbers come in? 
uh, at the end of the year. It's it's a moot point during the year because it's just it is what it is. What changes during the year is escrow. They they reevaluate it every quarter. They're like, okay, how are we doing revenue wise? What's the ad base? What's all this stuff? So they adjust the escrow throughout the year. And it's it's a tough one for a player. So if you start the year, they try to start it off pretty aggressively. They go, okay, well, we'll, we'll set the escrow at 16%. And then if the numbers are bad, you get the email or the call from the players if they go, well, we got to up the escrow to 20%. And you're just like, oh, because that's a big chunk of your, your check every week. You have taxes. And the taxes are based off of your salary, but what they don't base it off of is your escrow. So if you're making a million bucks, they're making basing that escrow or the tax off of the 1 million, not the escrow based off of the 800,000, because you're only making 800 if there's a 20% escrow. So it's a lose-lose for the players that changes throughout the year, but no, the, uh, the other stuff doesn't change until the end of the year. And then um, the player reps, you were part of the player association for several years in the league for different teams. Um, give us an insight to like what those meetings are like. And maybe what is the, what's the one source or topic, whatever that usually has is the most uh, has a source of the most disagreements among the players. What gets, what gets um, people heated? It's the rule changes. I, I feel like I, I think coming into the off season, you know what's going to happen with the salary cap. You know what's going to happen with the minor stuff. And mind you, it's not minor, but it was locked into the CBA. It was already baked into the deal. It's it's the rule changes because you can you know what the league's trying to do. The league's trying to make the game faster. They're trying to get more goals, but the players are trying to make the game more competitive. Goalies have obviously a side issue. Players' shots are getting harder. They're making it easier for people to score. The creases are getting smaller. They're just making it harder for goaltenders. So they're always fighting for their pads, and there's always conversations going back between goaltenders and players. Like, well, we don't want pads being so big, and jerseys are so big. And so that's always a constant issue. And then things like when I was in the league, um, fighting was an issue. The red line came in. They removed the red line when I was there. Headshots was a huge thing. So we had to, like, work with the league what's a suspension what's not a suspension we had the player safety there and those are the big issues because you have guys in the room who have had issues with headshots you had guys in the room like me who was you know a fighter you had guys in the room who were skill guys and it was a it was a unique experience where you had all kind of everyone involved in the nhl all kinds of different players and everybody had to come to an agreement and you have to vote at the end of the day well what's what's this what's that's what's a penalty what's a suspension and it was it was democratic but at the end of the day, the league kind of gets what it wants. You know, that, that's what it boils down to. But, it, you know, it got heated when it, when it was, what's a suspension? What's a headshot? Because you had a guy like Rafi Torres or a Cal Clutterbuck or Matt Martin who were, like, really involved in the PA, and they didn't want these headshots, these, these suspension enacted, because it, it changed the way they play the game. But then you had a guy like John Tavares who was a part of the PA. He's like, listen, like we need to protect the players. So there was a couple different dynamics going on and we all, we worked it out eventually, but yeah, it, it got uh, a little heated because players like that's not a suspension. That's not a hit. That's not a penalty, blah, blah, blah. And then other players like, well, if you want goal scoring to go up, you have to call the game tighter and this and that. So to be a fly in a wall is interesting because you have these star players arguing with each other. And it's just interesting to kind of see the dynamic of people's thought process of a different play, between two different players. So are you guys all like watching footage of specific plays and arguing whether or not this should be called a certain way? Yeah, because it changed from year to year. And you yeah. see even this year where it's like, well, even a hit 10 years ago would have, would be a 10-game suspension now. And it keeps evolving. It keeps changing. And yeah, the we'll put a clip up. We'll say, is this a penalty? 
And a group of guys will raise their hand. Yep. A group of guys will keep their hands down. No. And they'll just go through. Is this a penalty? Is this a penalty? And it just, it, you would go on and you would debate it. You would talk about it and you would say, well, what could this player do differently? What could the player with the puck do differently? Does that affect the game? Does that affect the, the, the thread core fabric of what it means to be a hockey player? And you would have these conversations and it was interesting, but it's also important because you want the game to be better, but you don't want to change what hockey is. You know what I mean? And so Sometimes you go too far. Sometimes you have to pull it back and it just kind of, because the game's ever evolving. It's ever changing. Players are getting better. They're getting more skilled. And Gary Bettman has his idea of what it means to be an NHL player and what he, what he wants to put the product out there as. So, you know, I think they've done a good job. I think they're in a good spot. I hope they don't change it too much. I like hockey where it is right now. I, I think it's a good balance of physicality and skill, and it's it's a good it's a good product right now. What were the instances or topics in which you personally were the most outspoken during those meetings? Well, obviously, obviously the headshots were a big one because he tried to crack down on fighting, and he insinuated that fighting had a lot to do with concussions. And George Peros and I and Kevin Westgarth, we were PA guys, and we – we had a lot to say and we we're like, well, show us the stats that say we're fighting causes concussions and it's not hitting. It's not the other stuff because they, they just threw all the blame at fighting. And I, I don't think that was just, I don't think there was the evidence there to back it up. And there wasn't. And they said, you know what? There isn't much evidence there. Most concussions come from hitting. It comes from other tertiary a- aspects of the game rather than just fighting. Cause in a fight, concussions don't usually happen. The only time I got concussions was I got tripped. I got, I got stuck. I got hit. It never came from a fight. I never got one concussion from a fight. So that being said, I was passionate about that. I didn't really care much about the goaltenders. I'm like, wear whatever you want. You know, players are sticks are getting better. They're getting I'm not going to score anyway. I'm not going to score anyways. It didn't involve me, but guys, they were talking about making the nets bigger. Goalies wanted their pads to be smaller. Ryan Miller was constantly texting me. Don't let him get this. Don't let him get that. So it's, uh, it's neat. You know, uh, it, Guys don't want to be player reps because it just means extra work, but it was interesting to kind of be involved in that atmosphere. I don't know. It keeps you on your toes. You do lots of calls throughout the year. You do lots of calls in the off season. The, when it was really hot and heavy was when we were negotiating our CBA and we had the lockout and stuff that we were doing daily calls, daily conferences. So, all right, that's enough, Tim. I don't, I don't want, I'm, I'm hungry. I got to go get something to it. I'll be back. I got to, I got to go get in my car, go to a restaurant and get some food. There's no other option. What else are you going to do? Nothing. You know what we can do? DoorDash it, Tim. You ever heard about this magnificent invention? I sure have. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. So if you're a listener to this show, go to DoorDash, order some food, get some food delivered to your house. You don't got to go anywhere. You can be a lazy bump on the log like us and it'll work out well. Get some pizza, get some burgers, get some sushi, get some salad, get whatever you want. Go to DoorDash, check out the app, check out the website. Tell them we sent you. It'll be great. DoorDash.com. Love it. All right. What? Any more, Tim? Any more quick Just hits? Quick hits before we wrap up here. Um, the reports are coming out. Not official yet, but it looks like the NHL and the Olympics are going to agree on letting the players participate. Um, this is all just in like the last 48 hours. So still very much a story in the, in the making, but that would be a good thing, I think. Right. I mean, it's the best players well, in the good world. for hockey. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's yeah. great. I think it's a good thing. NHL hockey is, well, not sorry. Olympic hockey is so interesting. I love yeah, watching it's so much game. fun. It's, it's so great. I don't think it's as good as the NHL. That's just me being biased, but it is fun to watch the best of the best play. I think the game's a little different, but uh, I love it. it. It's cool to see Canada, USA battle, Russia, Canada. Who's, who's the contender other than Canada? Who's the team? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Sweden's got to be up there. Sweden. Republic. 
That's good news, yeah. though. I think that the players love playing. The players love the break who aren't in the Olympics. I tell you what, the start of the year when I was playing and I knew there was an Olympic break, I'd go, all right, Danielle, where are we going? Where are we going? We got a week and a half off. It was beautiful because the guys had to go. Like It's a two-week break for the Olympics. And yeah. the guys who aren't in the Olympics, it's like, a, it's like another all-star break, but longer. It's fantastic. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on is kind of a fun little announcement is that we now have a voicemail system set up for the show. So you can call in just like you would for a radio station. It won't be live and, you know, call in anytime, day or night, whatever. It all goes to an inbox that I get and we'll bring some guys on the show. So you can be able to hear your voice in the show, ask a question, make a comment, um, argue, disagree, whatever, um, like we do here instead of tweeting at us, which you're also still welcome to do. But you'd actually hear your voice on the show, which we're super excited about. So here's how it works. And I'll tweet out the information on social media as well. But the number is 617-657-4723. You just give your name real quickly, and then uh, the phone will ring. You just leave a message after the beep like you would with a regular voicemail. And like I said, well, I'll get them all. Um, so you, didn't have, you don't have to call at any certain time or anything. Just call whenever you have a question. Uh, that's 617-657-4723. And hopefully we'll start getting those coming in and uh, incorporating that as part of the show. So I'm, I've been pumped for this one for a while. Ooh, that's interesting. Very fun. Very fun stuff, Tim. Also, go check out uh, Pound for Pound, the new fighting series. Steve McIntyre was just released on Friday. We got Ryan Reeves coming up this Friday. It'll be great. It's a, it's a fun season. Getting some pretty good reviews. Not going to pat myself on the back too much, but it's turned out pretty cool. Pretty good. All right. Well, I have one question for you, Tim. We were talking RFAs. There's a couple high-end RFAs still on the market. If you're a GM and you have to hand out one offer sheet, who do you hand it out to? You got Kachuk, Kaprizov, Pedersen, Quentin Hughes, Rasmus Dahlin, Anthony Beauvillier, Drake Batherson. Which guy are you targeting for an RFA offer sheet? Pedersen. Obviously, you have so you have such a man crush for Pedersen. It's not. Why did you ask if you knew what I was going to say? It's just it just solidifies your man. It's just it's like a boy band crush. You love. Well, he's the most talented guy on that list. No, he's not. Who's Kachuk? Is that your guy? No, I like Quinn Hughes. You know, he's got some defense, you know, issues in the back end, but it's not very often you can get a defenseman who can just join the rush, point per game, control the power play. I like Quinn Hughes. I would take him over Pedersen. And then after that, I'd probably go Kachuk Kaprizov. I don't like Pedersen. I don't like. Uh, I don't like. The, I don't like the cut of his jib. I really know. Not a fan of him. Yeah, I'll take him. I'll take him on my team. You did last year on your fantasy team, and what, where did you come? I didn't have him. I had Eichel. Dead my first last. round pick was Eichel. Who came first? I he did. did. First he team. didn't play. My first round pick didn't play the whole year. Not my. That's fault. a bad GM. Bad GM. I had McDavid. Okay. No big deal. All right, everybody. Well, enjoy the rest of the day. I hope you guys are having fun. We'll talk to you uh, later this week. I Hopefully, we'll be off of vacation, but I might still be. You never know. All right, everybody. I'll talk to you later. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Dropping the Gloves with John Scott, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash.